All right, so Amy's gonna to talk to us today about forgiveness. This is the fifth in the Foundations of Community series. So the first one was from Caroline, the accuser of the brethren. It was very much a powerful word of God that was deposited as a gift at the very beginning of this idea of moving into more intentional community. Second was the advocate versus the accuser. That was Caroline and Amy speaking. The third one wasn't actually given at CTR. It was uh, recorded at a church. It was a teaching by Marisha Yonka um, called The Gift of Repentance. And I got to speak a little bit at the end of that. Um, that was a wonderful teaching for Marisha to come bring her perspective from life both in community in Ludenscheid and as a German to speak into our situation here as Americans. The fourth teaching was also from Marisha, Living in the Light. And I think one of the important parts of that from a perspective of practices of community was the idea of confessing our sins one to another. She spoke about confessing the need to confess our sins one to another. So we the accuser of the brethren, not speaking accusation to each other, aligning ourselves with the advocate, the Holy Spirit, instead of with the accuser, then repentance, confession, forgiveness. Okay. See a theme there? We'll talk about, more about that in the afternoon. Um, so Amy, come speak to us about repentance. Now your teaching is not here anymore. It looks like it just, oh, here it is. because then your Bible becomes kind of a memory and a journal in itself. And if I had had time, I would have said, please, everyone, bring your Bibles. Maybe we will start encouraging that more. Can I make that little I'm a little short. I'm getting shorter all the time. Thomas said, we're going to talk about the topic of forgiveness. And this topic lies at the very center of our faith. It is the foundation of salvation. It's the purpose of the cross, and it's the glory of our holy and merciful God. Most of us who have grown up in the church have heard a lot about forgiveness, and that's that's entirely appropriate because Jesus spent a lot of time talking about forgiveness. He told multiple parables about forgiveness. When he healed people, he often said, your sins are forgiven. Healing and forgiveness were tied. He spoke about it in his sermons, and he taught us to pray, forgive us our trespasses, and we forgive those who trespass against us. Now, I believe there's a reason that Jesus spent so much of his time Time on earth speaking about forgiveness and that's because of two things one forgiveness expresses the glory of his father 
Two, because we humans don't understand the way justice works in the kingdom of heaven. By comparison, our courts are weak, they're watery, they're temporal, and they're easily swayed. Yet our emotions are strong, and we often find it hard to let go of offenses even when we know we should. In the same way, we often struggle with feelings of guilt or fear or shame over our own sin, even after we've brought it to Jesus. Now, the Trinity desires to walk in freedom of heart, which allows us to enter into their union. Jesus said, it is for freedom that you have been set free. Mm -hmm. Amen? Amen. Living in freedom brings Jesus glory. That's what he came for, right? So when we live in freedom, we bring him glory. Our freedom demonstrates the power of the cross. Without freedom, we don't experience joy, the joy that Jesus died for, and we can't enter into the union that he shares with the Father. Without freedom, we can't enter into union or unity with one another. Now, the joyful freedom of forgiveness is perhaps the strongest witness that we as individuals bear in a dark and angry world. I want to love the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit by manifesting freedom in my life. I want to walk in the reality that they know, which means that I need to think the way God thinks. Amen? Yes. Thankfully, we have an advocate who gives us the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2. And it's good. I, I encourage taking notes so you can look at these passages <clears throat> later. Because this is something, Scripture encourages us to renew our minds. And so renewing our minds means meditating on Scripture. Now, early this year, Marisha introduced me to a powerful series of teachings called The Two Trees by a young German woman named Esther Baumann. And if anyone's interested, I can give you the link to the whole series. I highly recommend it. I think it was, it was very good. And one of her teachings in particular felt important for us as a community of reconciliation. And I'm going to draw extensively from her teaching today. And it's called Powerful and Effective Forgiveness. Okay, everybody. Powerful, powerful and Effective Forgiveness. Who doesn't want powerful and effective forgiveness? <laughs> I'm gonna start with the verse she uses from the book of Proverbs. And I wish I had a board or a, here I wish I had something so that we could keep this before us. Do you have your scripture list? Yes. Yep. Everyone read with me Proverbs 17, 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both are an abomination to Adonai. An abomination to Adonai. That is strong language. Is that not strong language? <laughs> I would contend that one of our problems in experiencing spiritual freedom is that we as Christians do both these things. We justify the wicked and we mm. condemn the righteous. We approve of the things which God hates, and we are largely blind to the ways in which we do it. Sometimes we even think we're acting spiritually when we do it. But if we justify the wicked or condemn the righteous, we are not in agreement with God's justice. And if we are not in agreement with God's justice, then we are left with human justice, which can only punish. It cannot heal. It cannot set us free. So how may you ask, do we justify the wicked and condemn the righteous? 
I want to get to that, but first I want to talk about the court of heaven because we have to understand how God's justice system works. The first thing we must understand is there is a court in heaven. In this court, God sits on the throne. He rules the nations. He makes just judgments which are completely accurate and just, and he judges according to his laws which are glorious and perfect. Now, there are several references in scripture to this court of heaven. It's a worthwhile study. I'm not going to spell, spell them all out because it's, it's worth looking. But I'm going to give you a few. Um, one from Daniel and one from Zechariah. Who wants to take the Daniel passage? Any volunteers for Daniel? All right, Michael. Now? Yes, now. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Mm -hmm. That is a glorious scene. As, as you were reading that, I just wondered. I was like, I wonder if, my, if that's why the judges wore those little wooly, little wooly wigs. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> I don't know. It is a pale comparison. Anyway. Um, so, Ed, can you do Zechariah 3 yes. 1? Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. That's the, the first place we see, well, actually it's not, but it's spelled out there, the accuser of the brethren. That whole scene is fascinating to read. Now, in the book of Job, Satan appears before the Lord, asking permission from this court to test Job. Jesus tells Peter that Satan has demanded the right to sift Peter. And then there is the uh, passage from Revelation, which Caroline brought to us in April. Marty, would you read that? That's from Revelation 12. Then I heard a vo loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, to accuse them before our God day and night, has been cast down. <laughs> As you can see from scripture, and as Rose told us, Satan ain't afraid to parade himself before the Almighty, right? That is the epitome of pride. He stands before the righteous judge, and he charges God's people with their sins, day and night. Why does he do this? He does this because he desires our death and our estrangement from God. Now what Satan understands, perhaps more clearly than we do, is that the only accurate judgment for sin is death. Let's think about that for a moment. Once again, that kind of rubs against our sense of human justice. The death penalty for all sin seems really harsh. And let us be clear that God did not inflict that upon his people as their temporal law. But God is after something greater, greater than what was an act than we've ever seen. He wants complete union with us. He wants to live with us. And for that to happen, sin has no place. We cannot carry envy, lust, pride into the unity of the Godhead. That doesn't work, right? It has no place in heaven. 
And so the only thing to do is to kill it. That's the only thing that can happen with sin. It cannot abide in the glory of God. Now, as Matt has said, that does not mean that God does not look with mercy upon sinners. It means we cannot enter into union with him. We cannot, we cannot move into that which we have been created for. We cannot have unity with one another unless we are free from sin. Because when we are fully in union with the Trinity, then we will also be one in heart with every person who is also in union with the Trinity. And in that place, there can be no sin. Because sin causes division. Sin causes estrangement. So it must die. Now the good news is we have an advocate before the throne. 1 John 2, 1. Courtney, do you have the list? The, the sheet? My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now we've talked about the Holy Spirit as our advocate, and that is um, the title Jesus gave the Holy Spirit, one of the titles in the book of John. Now John is using the same word paraclete to refer to Jesus, and this should not throw us off because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. Now, let us imagine how the courtroom in heaven works. Holy imagination sounded scary to me at first. When I first heard of the idea, because like, what if I get it wrong? Is this blasphemy? Mm -hmm. We're not going to get it right, right? <laughs> but there, there are things that our eyes are veiled to. And that's one of the glories, I believe, of, of our walk, is that we walk by faith and not by sight. And yet... Scripture has given us lots of revelation. Jesus told lots of parables, and we have the Holy Spirit who gives us the mind of Christ. And so I think that we're safe expanding our imaginations in this way. Is that okay? Mm -hmm. All right. So let's be bold. Let's imagine a fictional character whom I will call Gertrude. Okay. Gertrude. 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 I don't know any Gertrude, so I thought it was safe. Okay. Now, Gertrude is a sister in Christ who is very different from me. She holds some opinions which I disagree with. She has some personality traits which get under my skin. And she happens to be in leadership in my church. So one day, Gertrude walks into a church leadership meeting and announces, this week I was feeling strongly that we as a church need to focus our resources. We need to focus on this upcoming evangelism outreach, and I was praying about it, and I went and I talked to the pastor, and he agreed with me on how unifying it would be if everyone in the church gets involved in my project. So, together we have decided to put all other projects on hold. And at that moment, my heart sinks, because one of the projects Gertrude is putting on hold is mine. <laughs> I have invested a lot of time and energy in my project, I've grown close to my team members. We're a small group. We care for each other. We pray together weekly, and she's just canceling the whole thing. I'm shocked. No one came to speak to me privately. I'm hurt, and I cannot believe this is happening. Now, Gertrude is prattling on happily about this evangelism outreach when suddenly I explode right there in the meeting. I ask her who she thinks she is, that her work is the only work that matters. And what about everybody else's work in the church? 
I say a few other cutting personal words and storm out of the meeting. And then I go a rant about her to my friends and embellish some of the facts for a bit of drama. <laughs> now Satan is laughing because he has a case against both me and Gertrude. Now let's start with me. I have spoken in anger against a sister. I'm harboring anger in my heart. I've spoken words that were intended to divide, to separate people from Gertrude. According to Matthew 5, I'm guilty of violence. According to Galatians 5, I'm guilty of dissension and factions. Satan knows it. Death is already at work. I am not in union with God or my sister. So Satan accuses me before the throne. Now sometimes the accuser brings trumped up charges before the throne. He is the father of lies. And he will smear our reputations and try to cloud our consciences. So we need to listen carefully to the Lord's verdict in the court of heaven. We need to be showing up. And I'm just realizing I'm talking here in front of a lawyer. Nobody yeah. really knows. <laughs> 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 you can correct me later. But anyway, but in this case, in this case, the accuser has a valid case. The father judges according to his law, knowing all the facts of the case. And he reaches a verdict. I am guilty. And the sentence is death. Now there are two ways I can proceed. Option one, I can protest. I can plead my own case. I can say, Lord, you know that Gertrude had it coming. She is so <laughs> full of herself. She has no consideration for others. You know she's done this to lots of people. And someone had to stand up to her. I know I went overboard and I even said I'm sorry. But a soul can only stand so much. Option two, I can follow the counsel of my advocates. And I can reply, guilty as charged. If I agree with the Father's judgment, then my advocate steps in. Jesus comes to my side and he offers his death for my sin. And my Father is overjoyed to accept that sacrifice because the blood of Jesus can do what my own death can't do. The blood of Jesus can atone. It can heal me and it can heal Gertrude and it can make right something which human justice can only punish. Well, dear friends, we need to contemplate the glory and the power of the blood of Jesus. What has the Godhead offered to us? The Father has allowed his Son the perfect joy of his heart, the only one who knows him fully to pay the penalty of death for us so that we can enter into their joy. If that is, the, if that is why Jesus died, we have no need to fear that he will do it, right? It was a huge sacrifice. It was the reason he sent his son. So appealing to God's mercy, appealing to the blood of Jesus is exactly what they're hoping for. We have no need to doubt that he will forgive us. If we agree with God's judgments that we are guilty and we trust in the cross as payment for our sin, then the accuser is cast down by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. We are agreeing with the, the, the testimony that we are guilty, but Jesus' blood is sufficient. If we refuse to accept God's judgment of the facts, 
we persist in our own self-defense, making excuses for our actions, then we are justifying the wicked, and that is an abomination to the Lord. The blood of the lamb was not shed for self-justification. Okay, now we're going to look at the courtroom from a different perspective. I repented from my sins. I have been fully forgiven by God. I know that. I am restored to fellowship with him, but my feelings are still hurt. Mm -hmm. I am still angry. I still think there's a wrong that needs to be righted. Now, I want to feel the comfort of my father, but I know as a good Christian that I have to forgive Gertrude if I want to be healed. So I walk into the throne room and announce, I forgive Gertrude. Now, I imagine Jesus, my attorney, pulls me aside and says, Amy, that's not the way things work. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to follow the system. There's a proper protocol. At that point, the father looks at me and asks, for which sins do you want to forgive Gertrude? Now, I'm a little shocked by this question, which I must say is not a thought exercise. I've actually felt the father ask me this before, and it shocks me, <laughs> because I've been, I've kind of grown up with the idea that letting go means not looking deeply at an offense, not thinking about it, not considering it deeply. And so um, I'm not used to that. I'm not used to, to thinking according to the facts. I'm sure that there are people in this room that are much better at it than I am, who are more um, justice-oriented than mercy-oriented in some ways. Actually, justice and mercy are one thing. They're just, we just have different ways of of looking at things. But human efforts at forgiveness are oftentimes, and especially in my case, I know, futile exercises in denial. We try to minimize the impact of sin on our own hearts or deny it by averting our thoughts or making excuses for the one who hurt us. We can say, oh, he had a really hard childhood, that's why he's so mean. And that's why I can distance myself and it doesn't hurt so much. Does that make sense? But the court of heaven deals only in facts. So the righteous judge asks me, for which sins do you forgive Gertrude? Well, I answer, I think Gertrude acted inconsiderately. She didn't speak to me privately. She didn't give any of us leaders a chance to speak up. I know she was under lots of pressure and it's just her personality to be short and take charge. It was the way she was raised, and I'm probably being too sensitive. <laughs> and the judge is not impressed. <laughs> he makes no comment regarding my rationalizations. And he presses the point, what sin did she commit? A little sheepishly, I respond, I think she acted rudely and arrogantly. And my father wholeheartedly agrees. Yes, she was rude and proud in both her words and her actions. She sinned against love, and her sin wounded you. And pride has no place in the body of Christ. My sentence is death. That's God's ruling. In my defense, God cares about me. He rules in my defense. But I'm a little alarmed, because I would have never asked for the death sentence for Gertrude. Right? <laughs> But I do feel the joy of being understood and vindicated. And then the righteous judge asks me another humble question. Amy, he says, may my son pay Gertrude's penalty. 
Now, of course, Jesus has already died for Gertrude. What my father is asking me is this, will I approve of his justice? Mm. Can I desire what he desires, mm. that his daughter Gertrude be reconciled with him? Mm. Can I recognize the enormity of the provision he has made for my offense? Do I understand that the blood which covers Gertrude's sin will also flow over me and fill my wounded heart? Or will I insist on holding on to my resentment and meeting out my own justice? Do I want to see Gertrude hurt? If I insist on my own vengeance, then I will miss out on the payment that my Savior has made. This is the lesson of Jesus' parable about the unforgiven servant in Matthew 18. The servant owed a huge debt to his master, which he couldn't pay, so he begged for mercy and he received it. And then he promptly went out and abused a fellow servant who owed him a much smaller debt. And when the master heard how the servant whom he had forgiven had treated a fellow servant, he was furious and threw the man in jail. The truth is that in the court of heaven, Jesus has offered us a compensation worth far, far, far more than a multi-million dollar judgment. If we choose to release our complaint to his justice, we'll receive this gift of his blood, of his compassion, of his love, his healing, his understanding, and his vindication, though we don't exactly see how it works. In my hypothetical case, I am tempted to cling to resentment towards Gertrude. And if I do not accept God's justice, I will not see a penny of Jesus' provision for me. My hurt will go unrequited by the balm of his blood. And what's more heartbreaking, I'll be like the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son. I'll stand outside the party fuming. When God wants to rejoice in his daughter Gertrude being brought back from the dead. Amen. My friends, these stakes are really high. Yeah. Esther Bauman contends that the reason many people live their lives like the elder brother, wanting to enter the party but uncertain of their father's favor, is that they haven't truly reckoned with the sin they've suffered in the court of heaven. They haven't brought a full account of all of their grievances to the court of heaven. Perhaps they've rationalized the offenses like I am prone to do because it lessens the pain a little bit. It makes it not so personal. But this prevents us from hearing the Lord's verdict. And when we don't hear the Lord's ruling, we don't know his jealous love. It says, yes, my daughter, you were hurt. You were offended. This is wrong. We don't know God's jealous love for us. We're like the elder brother who says, you never even gave me a goat to share with my friends. Oh, sisters and brothers. Oh, don't you see how much more we have been given than the fatted calf? We need to pour our hearts out to the righteous judge and listen to his counsel. Sometimes when we come to court, he may tell us the offense we feel is not really a matter of sin. He may tell us we've misunderstood misjudged. He may say, you really are too easily offended. This is a possibility. It's his court. He knows the facts. But often we will hear the guilty verdict, which demonstrates his jealous love for us. This process can take a while. It may be that we recall some new aspect of a sin against us, and we need to come back to court. 
It may be that the pain resurfaces occasionally. We need to review the case again. But if we stand before the Father's throne often and listen to his counsel, we will be changed mm. by hearing his jealous love. Mm. And he will tell us how to move forward. He will give us practical counsel about how to move forward. He may ask us to go to a brother or sister and tell them how they have hurt us. This helps our brother or sister with their blind spots. It helps them enter the courtroom and it aids the process of reconciliation. When we're aware that we have offended, expressing our sorrow for our offense also helps in healing the wound. It also helps usher both parties into the courtroom. Now having said all this, there's an important truth about forgiveness which we need to consider. The forgiveness offered in the court of heaven forgives spiritual guilt. It's an eternal verdict which gives eternal life. But it does not exempt us from the temporal consequences of sin. There are consequences to our sin which are also part of God's justice. So where may you ask is this taught in scripture? One clear example is the fact that even after we have been saved, we die, right? These bodies which have been ravaged by sin will die and be raised again because they're not fit to live in the eternal light of God. The story of David's sin is another very clear example. God loved David and made an eternal covenant with him. But David committed adultery, and that sin led to Bathsheba's pregnancy. And when David thought he would be found out, he plotted to have Bathsheba's husband Uriah killed. So Nathan came to David to confront him, and David immediately agreed with God's judgment and repented on the spot. Who wants to read 2 Samuel? Jenny, have you got it there, 2 Samuel? Oh, uh, yes. Let me see. Can I have them back here? Yes. 2 Samuel 12. Then uh, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord. The son born to you will die. 2 Samuel 12, 13-14. Now notice that the Lord takes away David's sin immediately. In fact, Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sin as if the judgment was made even before David asked for forgiveness. The language here is the same we find in the New Testament. The Lamb of God who takes away our sin. But David still suffered the temporal consequences of that sin. And unless you think this applies only to the Old Testament, let's hear what the writer of Hebrews says. Uh, Jolene, do you want to read Hebrews 12? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we will have, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. 
we need to understand this truth in order to practice kingdom forgiveness. Forgiving other people does not mean we should always excuse them from temporal punishments. As parents, we know this is true. We love our children, our hearts are always open to them, but for their sake, for their siblings' sake, for their future friends' sake, they need to feel the consequences of their sin, right? The imaginary scenario we've been using today is a relatively mild offense. There are much more terrible sins which damage people deeply. Sins like physical abuse, sexual abuse, alcoholism, many more. Forgiveness is never ever a license for abusive behavior. It's never a license to let sin go unchecked, yeah. never. Yeah. It is a false understanding of biblical forgiveness which calls a wife to stay in an abusive home. It's a false understanding of forgiveness which would spare a criminal from jail. It has been a tragic widespread failure on the parts of churches to allow abusers, abusers to continue in their ministries in the name of forgiveness. That's not what forgiveness is about. Forgiveness is about eternal salvation, is about taking away the stain of guilt. And forgiveness, a person cannot ask for forgiveness until they're aware of it, right? Until it's been recognized. The court of heaven offers forgiveness for sins which have been confessed, not for sins which have been denied or which people persist in intentionally. Reconciliation is even a deeper word than forgiveness. Reconciliation cannot happen until sin has been recognized by both parties and there's been steps towards healing and reconciliation. In Christ, we can forgive even when reconciliation is impossible. And I've learned this from Hannah Miley, who offers one of the best definitions of forgiveness I've ever heard. You, know, you may know that Hannah lost her family and her home, everything in the Holocaust. And she says that forgiveness is releasing judgment to God. It's trusting in his righteousness and desiring what he chooses desiring what he wants. In 2015, a white supremacist walked into a Bible study in one of our nation's oldest black churches. He shot nine people dead and wounded three others. One of the survivors spoke to the press shortly after the shooting, saying that she chose to forgive the shooter. Now, when she said that, there was an uproar among some black leaders saying black people needed to stop forgiving white people and demand justice. And you can totally understand that, right? But this sister was not pardoning the shooter. This woman had no legal right nor any desire to pardon him. He was a danger to society and she knew that better than anyone. What she was saying is that she refused to let bitterness take over her heart. She refused to enter into the accuser's game of hatred. She chose to accept the blood of Jesus as sufficient for this horrible crime. Mm. And as a result, she was open to sitting next to this man at the Supper of the Lamb, if he would also choose the blood of Jesus. Right. Brothers and sisters, if the blood of Jesus is not sufficient to take away the sin of the world, how can there be joy at the Lord's banqueting table? How can generations of slaves sing songs with the children of their captors? How can the victims of the Holocaust seem worthy as the Lamb? The blood of our Savior is far more powerful than we imagine. <clears throat> if 
We do not believe in the power of Jesus to take away sin and not simply cover it up. We run the risk of condemning the innocent. And that is an abomination to the Lord. Now what do I mean by that? Well, this June, the Lord gave me a lesson on this topic. One morning I woke up from a vision. Now this was not an imaginative dream. It was a vision which Jesus prompted in order to teach me a lesson from his perspective. So in this vision, I saw a woman standing before Jesus. She was silent, looking up into his face. And Jesus said to the woman, I remove your sin. And immediately I saw the sin shoot out of her chest like a rocket. It was a physical object, a projectile, and it started traveling in orbit. I could, the pan, the um, scene panned out and I could see the entire earth and, and the little rocket of sin was like going out farther and farther and farther like a comet expanding. And I understood immediately this was a picture of Jesus removing our sin as far as the east is from the west. Wow, I thought that one must be so happy to have her <laughs> sin gone. I was amazed at the joy and relief I felt for her to have that burden, like it's gone. And then I realized rather sheepishly that I was the woman. <laughs> or at least Jesus had done for me exactly what he'd done for that woman. I continued to ponder the image, just feeling this incredible joy of sin being gone, realizing that if Jesus has removed a sin, we Christians should should rejoice. We should rejoice that we have been restored to fellowship, that God's um, provision has cleaned us. It is so happy. <laughs> it's, it's better news than we can imagine. It's gone. That's the reality. That's the reality from heaven's perspective, is that it's gone. Now, if our brothers and sisters have a sin which has been removed, it would be an abomination to condemn them for that sin, would it not? We need to understand that when a sin has been confessed and taken to the cross, it is gone. It's spiritually gone. There may be temporal consequences, but spiritually it's gone. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. When we rejoice in this justice, the accuser is cast down. But if we do not rejoice over the repentance of another, we have to remember that he who condemns the righteous is an abomination to Adonai. Now, I believe that most of you know that Thomas and I visited a beautiful Christian community in Georgia last month. The Alleluia community is made up of 250 families who've signed a covenant to live together in love as a visible expression of the body of Christ. And some of these families have been living together for more than 40 years. And when we ask some of the Alleluia members what they love most about community, many of them laughed and said, it gives you lots of practice at forgiveness. <laughs> now, I've always known this would be true about community, and frankly, it's been what scared me. <laughs> My flesh balks against the humility it takes to tell another person I have been hurt or to hear from another person that I have hurt them. But that's the enemy warring against the victory he dreads. Mm -hmm. 
I did not hear any fear or regret or even pain among the members of the elegant community when they spoke about forgiveness. Rather, I heard the joy of those who had seen the accuser cast down in their midst. There is a dimension of our God's glory and beauty which is uniquely expressed in his mercy. Mercy is, perhaps, an aspect of God's glory which we humans manifest to angels because we can repent of our sins. And when we practice forgiveness towards others, we participate in the character of our Father. We extend to one another the gift of love which Christ has given us. There's my favorite line from the Easter liturgy in the Catholic Church is from an ancient Latin song called the Exultant. In English, it is rendered, O happy fault, which won for us so great a redeemer. And it's speaking about the fault of Adam. And the point is this, if we had not sinned, we would not know how great God's love for us is. We would have never experienced that part of his character. In the same way, we discover the depths of each other's love when we forgive and receive forgiveness. This is the power of Christ's blood and the mystery which even angels long to look into. My great desire for us all as followers of Christ and for us at Christ the Reconciler is that we would enter the courtroom of heaven and we would look deeper at the wonder of our advocates of the blood of Christ and of the Father's mercy. And that we would be known as the Father's true children, a people who forgive. So I'd like to take just a, f- a few moments of silence. <clears throat> and maybe stretch a little bit, get their blood flowing just a little bit. But I would like us to enter the courtroom of heaven in our minds, asking for the help of the Holy Spirit. And we don't necessarily have to take an offense there. It's just we can just stand in this court and ask to hear the proceedings, (laughs) ask if there's anything he would like to say to us.